If you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Today we're going to cover a large section. I'm not going to read it all. We're covering through chapter 31. If you want to talk to me about that selection, please do so after the service. We're not going to spend time on each detail of furniture or clothing, although we could. There's a lot there, but I'm going to read a couple of selections for us. I'm going to start with 24, verse 12, and read down through 25, 9, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 29. I'm going to read a portion there. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and I will wait there, that I may give you the tables of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now flip over to chapter 29. Picking up in verse 38, reading to the end of the chapter. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth, a sea of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. 
There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanct it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, there's so much here. Would you help us? Lord, would we behold Christ? And would we find ourselves in Christ, those who are living stones being built into a temple to proclaim your glory all over the earth and dwelled by your spirit? Would you teach us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you paid attention last week, we had a prepared place and a prepared people. We have the same again this week. Like, this is crazy. This is, this is going to be the same sermon. It's the same sermon outline. Except this time, it's God getting his space ready to dwell in our midst. It would be like this. It would be like if we're going on a big trip, we're, we're going to move from where we live now. We're going to camp along the way till we get home. It would be like God saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to come with you on that trip. I'm going I'm to be in your midst the whole time. That's what's going on here. We come to the, the end of this section, this, this mountain interchange. Moses is now up there. And this is what God is telling him while there. He has the law, he has the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant. And now he's telling him about a tent and about some priests. In many ways we've come to the climax of the Exodus. The text that I just read, you're, you're going to see God says why I brought you out of Egypt. I didn't bring you out so that you could be a static people. I, I brought you out so I could live in your midst. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the promise of God to the people of God forever. That's the never-changing promise of God. Here we see that God gives a place for him to be amongst his people. And he also gives priests who will mediate that presence before the people. First, God gives this place for us to be with him. This is 25, 26, 27, 30, and so on. And then we'll see on the, the, the back end of the, the end of Exodus, we'll actually see this executed and built. This is the goal of all of Exodus, by the way. God is a missionary. God is a missionary. And he is coming to, to be a missionary to his people. I am moving in with you. The tabernacle and all, of, all the trimming says this. God's address is the same as our address. 
we have the same address. What we see in the tabernacle instructions here is what's akin to a divine open house. If you're not southern, you may not know what this is. If you're southern, you know very well what an open house is. You move in, you set up shop, you have everything the way you like it, and then you tell people, hey, here's a day. Everybody come over. Why are we going over there? That was my question as a kid. Why are we going over to their house? They're, well, they're having an open house. Well, our house is open. No, that's not what it is. This is a formal open house. This is where you're going to hear about everything in the house. You're going to hear how old the house is. You're going to hear about all the modifications made to the house. You're going to hear about this piece of furniture in the corner. You're going to hear about every detail. That's kind of an open house. And you have punch and cake and stuff like that. This is a divine open house. That's what these chapters are. We have to look here and, and see what's going on. Why this open house? What's going on? What's significant about it? Well, of course, from the jump, it's very significant that God would dwell with his people. What an amazing reality. This scene will dominate the remainder of Israel's history. From the tabernacle that moves around in this temporary way, in this caravan way, to the building of a temple. To its destruction and, and then them carried away in captivity and then brought back in and another temple. It dominates the landscape of the people. The psalmists long time and time again to be in the presence of God and his temple. We just sang about it. Then I will go to the altar of God, God my exceeding joy. Psalm 27, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. The psalmist is saying, I want to live there. I want my address on earth to be God's address. Not the same P.O. box. We live in the same place together. Psalm 84, behold our shield, our God. Look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Do we have that same sense of longing and urgency to live with and to be in the presence of God? It's a goal all through scripture since it was lost at Eden. That's got to, again, it, it has to resonate week in and week out in Exodus. If you lose what went down in Genesis, you're not going to catch what's going on in Exodus. Is that a part of what you're thinking? Hey, we lost this. We were together with God. Joy, exceeding joy. All the food we could ever, holy and happy is the language given to it. And we were cast out. And the way was east, and there was a, a cherub set there, and it's not cute, it's not pretty, it's not precious moments. It's a flaming sword. Look, the way back in is through death. You're not going to beat this angel. So Moses takes, is, is instructed by God to, to take a collection 
The hearts of the people are going to be moved. They're going to be moved here at the base of Sinai. They're going to be moved based on their relationship to God. They're going to be moved to give, and they're going to give lavishly. Where does all this come from, by the way? Where does a wandering people in the middle of the desert come by all these incredible woods and fabrics and jewels and precious material of every kind? Where did they get it? They just found it along the way. It was on the side of the highway. Where did they get it? They plundered Egypt. In the redemption that God had delivered, he said, they're going to they're gonna give to you lavishly. You're going to have all this stuff with you. And if you're like me, you're scratching your head like, why are they getting rich out here? Well, God is blessing them. And part of that blessing is going to be this building of a tabernacle. And this thing is beautiful. It's ornate. So let's take a guided tour. Our text kind of starts in the the heart, the dead center, works its way out and then back in. And while it's out, it kind of gives a look at the priest. We're not going to walk, walk it that way. We're going to start our way on the outside and go in. Here's the open house given to us by God. First, we see the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is a tent approximately 15 by 45 feet. This portion is covered. The covered portion is surrounded by a larger courtyard that's 150 feet long by roughly 75 feet wide. The whole structure faces east. It faces east. The sole entrance to the courtyard faces east. The sole entrance to the tent of meeting faces east. The only way from inside the tent, the holy place, to the holy, most holy place, the holy of holies, is east. First thing you encounter as you walk in is an altar. This altar burns with fire day in and day out, morning and evening and all, t- all points in between. In addition to the other sacrifices spoken of two times per day, a year old lamb in the morning and at twilight in the evening, all the other sacrifices offered here for the consecration of various individuals, and we'll take a look at some of that later. This altar is busy. This is a place of death. That's the first thing you see. You see death. Then you see a bronze basin beyond the altar moving west. Here sits a bronze basin for washing. The text says that Aaron and his sons must must wash their hands and feet before they offer a burnt offering or before ministering in the tent. This must be done each and every time so that they will not die. They will wash. You have to be clean to work here. Your hands and feet must be cleansed to work here so that you will not die in the presence of God. The holiness of God means that the tabernacle is a place of continual sacrifice. That's what his holiness demands. What does it look like for God to have his tent to pitch his dwelling place in the midst of a sinful people? It looks like something has to die. 
Then we come to the entrance to the tent of meeting. This is inside that larger courtyard where you have an altar and a basin. And then there's a veil, the first veil that you go through. It's a curtain. Again, it's, it's facing east, so you're walking west going in. This is a curtain made of blue and purple and scarlet thread. Entering through this veil takes you into the holy place. In the holy place, you come to a golden lampstand. On the left-hand side of the room, the south side, there's a lamp. It's made of precious wood, acacia wood. It's covered in gold. This lamp has branches on it like a tree. It looks like it's supposed to resemble an olive blossom. It's a tree. And at the end of each of its branches, there are cups. Cups to hold oil and a wick goes in there so it can burn continually. One of the priest's duties was to go in and fill those cups so it always burns. There's always light in there. Exodus 25, 37 tells us where the light is to shine. It says this, you shall make seven lamps for it and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. We'll talk about what's in front of it in just a minute. He's saying light the space adjacent to it. Well, the, there's only two sides of the room here, 15 feet wide. It's, there's not a lot that it could be. John chapter 8, a famous I am statement of Jesus. What does he say? I am the light of the world. Here this light is shining. It's, it's shining across the room to this table of bread of presence on the right on the north side of the room where's this light shining track with me here it, it holds 12 loaves of bread stacked placed on the bread daily the priest would then eat them after a given amount of time and and replace them in the tabernacle the light of God's presence is shining on these 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The light of God is shining on the people of God. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus also says, I am the bread of life. The light of God's presence is to shine on the people of God. Remember, number six, we often use it in benediction here. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Here, ever burning in the holy place, the light of God shines on the people of God. It's constant. The back of the holy place, there is one other piece of furniture standing in front of another veil. There's an altar which continuously burns incense, Exodus 30, verse 6. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet you. Why incense? Other places in the Old Testament, we see that incense and prayer go together. They're jammed together. Incense is like a physical 
expression of the prayers of God's people continually going up to him. Incense burning in the tent would also continuously produce smoke, representing another layer veiling the sights of the one walking in to to do work there. It would be a haze there, much like Sinai. Hey, you can't see this in full. This whole mountain has got to be covered with smoke because if, if you saw God, he would break out against you. And that would not go well. There's continual smoke in the, the tabernacle of pleasing aroma before the Lord. So every time the priest goes in, he fills the lights, burns incense, replaces the bread. And not just anyone can go in the tent, it has to be the priests, and we'll talk more about them. And they can only go into the holy, of, holy place to, to do their work, and then there's only one priest out of all the priests that can go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And then, again, only the high priest, and only once a year, on the day of atonement. Standing between the holy place and the most holy place, There is a veil, and this is what it says. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It's just like the the veil that's behind us, right? Except it adds this. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully woven in it. The only other place until we get right here in scriptures up till now that we've seen cherubim is one standing on the east side of the Garden of Eden holding a sword. And here God is saying, coming back into my presence, here it is again in the veil. An angel who will kill you. To come in here means death. To get back into Eden, to have this restored relationship with God means somebody's got to die. That's what a cherubim represents. This is holy ground and you're a sinful people and you cannot come any closer. And then we come to the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Testimony. This is a wooden box. Again, acacia wood made with gold. There are rings on the bottom of the box and poles through it that stay in place all the time. Remember, this whole thing is portable. The mercy seat goes over the ark. It's a lid for this box. And on the top of that mercy seat, there are hammered works of, again, cherubim. There are two of them. They have wings that cover the ark and they look at each other. And this sits on top of the golden box. And you can't go in there but once a year. This is the most holy place. This is where God says, I will meet with my people here over this box between the cherubim. There I will meet with you, Exodus 25. And from above the mercy seat, from the between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This covers referred to as the atonement cover. There's a couple of items that 
that make this box significant as well. Into the ark at the feet of God would go the law of God, tablets of stone. And later we'll see there'll be be some other pieces that will also go in there. But what I want us to, to consider just for a minute is at the footstool of God's throne is his law. And two cherubs hovering over this thing, and they mean business. They're looking at that law, and they're ready to spring at at first command of God. Hey, your law has been violated, and these two things, these two creatures mean business. Ever since they were set to guard the way back into Eden, they've carried a flaming sword, and it is not cute, it is not pretty, it is death. And once a year... A high priest would enter, killing a lamb, a year old, and he would take the blood of that lamb and smear it over the top of the mercy seat, making atonement, kapoor, atonement, a covering, so that when God looks into that box, that his broken law that resides there would be utterly covered by the blood of a lamb. The tabernacle represents a continued relationship with God. God is saying this, Eden is going with you. Eden is going away back into Eden. That is going with you and so is Sinai. The tabernacle is full of this great tension. It's it's beautiful. God has come to dwell in a tent with his people. But at every turn where God dwells with his people, watch out. There are big yield signs. Like as soon as you walk in, going west, you see a yield sign. Hey, coming in here means death. It's a place of death. God is dwelling with his people, but things are dying all around. God is dwelling with his people, but not all of them can enter. Only certain ones can go in. The tabernacle opens east. It's full of jewels and precious stones. It reminds us again of God's creation. This is creation as it was supposed to be. This is the only way back into what God has designed us for. The tabernacle is not a safe space. It's full of God's glory and power and holiness. And again, it's full of warnings. Altar, wash basin, veil, another veil. The tabernacle and Sinai, again, are Eden regained. But this is not a, an easy prospect for us. In fact, it's not a possible prospect for us. This is not sustainable long term. We need a better tabernacle. Preferably a tabernacle that will not kill us when we go in. Our first New Testament text today is profound. John was loading it with all the theology that he could. In very simple and beautiful language, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. That term there, it's an interesting term. It's this, it's he tabernacled with us. 
The Word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of God Himself, God the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the answer for the tabernacle. We, as the people of God, have a better meeting place with God. We have a better address with God, and it's called Jesus Christ. And all the threats of undoing and all the threats of death that existed in the tabernacle, Jesus said, I am coming to fulfill all of them. And all the beauty there of restored creation and renewal of all things and no more threat and life everlasting, Jesus is bringing all of that to bear. Here is the new tabernacle. That's great. That's great, Pastor. We have a new tabernacle. That tabernacle happens to be ascended into heaven. Aren't you aware of that? Yeah, I am. So because he is seated at the right hand of God, that clearly must mean that God is no longer present in our midst, right? And all our prayers for Shreveport and Bossier and hurting family members and friends without hope. The tabernacle, the tent, the dwelling place of God, Christ, is ascended. Did he leave us without his presence, people of God? We also read Ephesians 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer just out there on the outside, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. The church at Ephesus was being built into a temple. What about Grace Presbyterian Church in Shreveport? Are we growing into a holy temple place for God to dwell, to show himself to a a lost and broken world, to shine light and truth around us? Are we those agents of Christ, tabernacling God, tabernacling here in our midst, full of grace and truth? Could that be said about our church? There's a key here, 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here it goes, you ready? No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. That's what John is saying. where's Where's the address if no one can see God? How is God with us? He says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We are the tabernacle, the the temple of God built up with living stones. This is all over the the New Testament. You, You can't read your New Testament without seeing this reality. God dwelling in us as individuals, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. But also God dwelling in us corporately. That's what's going on here. The Ephesian church, they're they're the temple of God. 
And then John comes along and says, how will people see God? How will people know? And it says this, when we love each other. When we love each other. Church, how are we doing at being a tabernacle of God in Shreveport, Bossier? To ask it another way, how are we doing at loving each other? Do we look like the rest of the world? Do we relate to one another like the rest of the world? We, we keep deep books. We keep accounts a long ways. We remember, we remember when our brother or sister wronged us. We keep long accounts. Is that how people will look at us and see the temple of God? Would that be a dwelling place that with the psalmist you could say, I would rather spend one day in there than 10,000 elsewhere? Is that that kind of place? God is not seen. Do we show others the truth that God abides in us by our love? Can people that look at Grace Presbyterian Church and see that God is abiding here? And is central to that idea of God tabernacling through us, is that full of grace and truth? Again, who are we in Shreveport? Think of your greatest hopes and desires for us as a church body, in our community. Do those great hopes and desires for us as the people of God gathered together include that we love other people? There's a lot that we could list that we, hey, we do all these things as a church. We've got a lot going on. We're, everybody's busy. We're full of grace and truth. God's tabernacle, his sanctuary, his address here in our midst as we hang out for an hour after worship together, simply to love each other and hear from each other, I think there it can be seen. Do we offer that to our city? Do we offer it to our neighbors? God tabernacles among us. And he has this place where he meets us, but that's not good enough. There also needs to be a people that will go before the Lord. Not just anybody can go strolling in here. Again, we've said that this tabernacle in the temple, it's full of death. If you just start whistling and just slip on by and ease through, and I'm just going to see what is behind this curtain, curtain's for you. Wouldn't go well, it meant death. So God sets aside a people to represent us. Two things about the priests, and we'll go quickly here. Priestly garments, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. This is chapter 28 and 29. For glory and for beauty, God tells us why they're going to look like this. He's very specific. He's going to give this whole long list of things that they wear. A breast piece, an, an ephod, which is uh, like this apron that's connected with two shoulder straps. A robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, a sash, holy garments for Aaron and his sons. Just point out a few things about this uh, this robe, this outfit. It bears all the hallmarks of the tent. 
the same kind of cloth, the same kind of stones. It's, it's meant to say, hey, this is the beautiful priest. This is Eden restored. This is what Adam should look like. He's decked out like Eden. He's got all the jewels of Eden on his body. And listen, there's, there's more. There's, uh, this, on this ephod that connects with these two shoulder straps, there's two onyx stones. And on those stones on his shoulders engraved are all the names of the tribes of Israel. That's not the only place. In this ephod, in this breast piece, breastplate of judgment, there are sewn in 12 stones. God tells them what every one of them are supposed to be. They don't have to make it up. So there are 12 stones covering his heart. On each stone is a name of the tribe of Israel. God tells us why he's doing this. Exodus 28, 29 through 30. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The end of that text, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This is what the priest does. The priest walks around bearing the judgment of God over his heart with the names of all those tribes on his heart and on his shoulders. There's a hymn writer who must have been reading his Bible he wrote this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while with God he stands in heaven, no tongue can bid me thence depart. You can't tell me to leave because I'm there in Jesus. One more thing. They're ordained, and it's a bloody spectacle. It's a, it's a huge mess. It involves the death of a bull and then two rams, and blood is everywhere. Blood is on their ear, their thumb, their big toe. One of these days, Demyron, we're going to have the distinct pleasure, Lord willing, of seeing ordination. Demyron, aren't you thankful that it's not like this? It's bloody. Why? Because these people will represent God to, to the people and the people before God. Let me ask you, is Aaron holy? Is he righteous? How about his sons? If you just read any beyond this, you're, you're going to learn, no, these guys do not have it going on. It's a bloody spectacle. It's a mess. People in the priesthood are going to die before God. You get the recipe wrong. You burn the wrong incense. It doesn't go well. These are unrighteous people. Something has to die so that the priest can go in and out every day. So not only did we need a better tabernacle, we need a better priest. Who is that better priest? We've referenced Hebrews time and time and time again together. Who, child of God, who is our better priest? 
who did not enter into this, this tabernacle, but through his death, he entered the, the tabernacle that this one is just a model of. It's just a scale model of the courts of God in heaven that are vast. And he enters to that temple. And he goes and makes atonement with his own blood, forever securing our pardon. In Christ, we have a great high priest who's entered the heavens for us. And he's bearing our names over his heart. And on his shoulders where he, he carried his own cross beam, our names were there. Yours and mine. We needed a better high priest and in Christ we got one. A few points of application. Every single person here will stand before God. Who will represent you to him? We all have to go there. It's appointed to us once to die and then judgment. Look, if you try to represent yourself in the tabernacle, this wandering tent going around, in, in, wandering around the desert and then into the land of Canaan, finally, if you just wandered in there because you wanted to meet with God, that meant death. God is still holy. Do you have a high priest who represents you before the Father? Fly to Christ. Know that he is your righteousness. He is your covering. Our great high priest bears our names to the Father in his own blood. Are you hurting? Are you tired? If you don't know the way to God and you're here wondering about that, hear it right here. See it in your high priest who bears your name before the Father atones for all your sin and invites you to come find refuge in him. A better high priest than Aaron or his sons. If you're a believer here today and you're beset by sin and awash in guilt, it's eating your lunch. You need to be reminded that Christ is the only acceptable offering for sin. You will never feel enough shame to take an eraser to what needs to be erased. You can never do enough good to cover all the bad that you have done. If you're here awash in guilt and shame over sin, see your great high priest who's gone before you. He's offered his blood for you, child of God. Do you feel weak? Are you weary and struggling in your faith? Christ ever lives to intercede for you at the right hand of God, and he knows your name. Christ is, you know what, sometimes we use just that term, intercession. He is interceding for you. What does that mean? Christ is uttering us, our names, before the Father. We're not the only ones who pray. Christ prays for us. Are you weak and struggling and utterly without resource to do anything about the situation? You have a great high priest who ever lives and intercedes for you. Let that be an encouragement to you, child of God. God's place 
And God's priests are all here for you, all consumed, all wrapped up in one person, Jesus Christ. So that now we can be as the people of God individually and collectively and dwelt by the Spirit of God. His Spirit has been poured out, making us alive, making us the dwelling place for God on earth. Are we full of grace and truth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, help us to see and hear by your Holy Spirit. May we be encouraged as we see our better tabernacle. May we be heartened as we interact with our greater high priest. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.